Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. I'm joined by commentator and filmmaker Larry Elder. Mr. Elder also uh, does some work for the Epic Times. He's the executive producer of Uncle Tom 2. And Uncle Tom 1. And Uncle Tom 1. Why Uncle Tom 2 and why now? Well, the first one, someone described as a love letter to America. And it talks about how black people, despite coming out of slavery, despite black people being illiterate, most of them, uh, despite the KKK, despite Jim Crow, still kept moving forward. In 1940, 87% of blacks lived under the poverty line. 20 years later, 1960, that number had fallen to 47%. A 40-point drop in 20 years. Why? Because it was rare, very unusual, for a black kid to enter the world without a father married to the mother. Secondly, a strong belief in entrepreneurship. Third, a strong belief in God and Judeo-Christian values. And finally, a strong belief in patriotism, even as America was not treating black people the way they should have treated black people. They still kept moving forward. Uncle Tom 2 is about what happened to the civil rights movement and what happened to this progress. And Uncle Tom 2 talks about how the civil rights leaders, proponents, began to not only demand equal rights, but to demand equal results. And those are two very different things. The second thing that happened uh, is the so-called war on poverty that was launched in the mid-60s by Lyndon Johnson and by the Democrats that literally incentivized women to marry the government and incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility to the point where, as we talk about in Uncle Tom too, you have a group called Black Lives Matter where on their website they attack the nuclear family. The founders are self-described trained Marxists. Marx did not believe in entrepreneurship. He did not believe in property. He did not believe in private ownership of property. And he was an atheist who wanted to dethrone God. And he certainly was not a patriot. So the very values that allow black people to continue going forward, as we discussed in Uncle Tom 1, under assault, uh, as we describe in Uncle Tom 2. Would it be fair to say that Uncle Tom 2, in a way, is a wake-up call to today's black church? It absolutely is a wake-up call to today's, today's black church and, and black religious leaders. When I ran for governor, the most contentious interview I had, and I had a lot of contentious interviews, was with a group of black pastors, around six or eight of them on a virtual uh, interview. And for the first few minutes, it was going reasonably well until I said that the number one problem facing the black community was not systemic racism, was not police brutality. It is a large number of black kids who entered the world without a father married to the mother. And they went ballistic and began to attack me. And I said, it's not just me saying this. It's Barack Obama who said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. Now the question you ought to be asking yourself is how have we gone from having 25% of black kids entering the world without a father in the home married to the mom in 1965 to 70% today? Are you telling me that we're more racist today than we were back in 1965? I said to them, if leadership malpractice were a crime, you people would be on death row. And they did not receive that very well. Oh, I, don't, no. I, don't think, I don't think I got their support. <laughs> I don't but think I, so. But, I, but I, I said, you people are role models. You set the tone. You help to define what we ought to be talking about. 
and you're ignoring the 10,000-pound elephant in the room? This is what's causing all the problems. Crime is a direct relationship to this. Bad schools, a direct relationship to this. And they didn't see it. Now, this was just a handful of pastors, and I got a lot of support from the evangelical community in, in, uh, in California. But I must say that a lot of the black pastors were completely AWOL on my candidacy and indeed even, even supported my opponent. How do we fix this problem? And it's a problem, I think, that is even growing in the white community. Oh, yes. How do we fix it? Yeah, it is growing in the white community. 25% of white kids are now into the world without a father married to the mother. And in 1965, the 25% of blacks that I mentioned triggered a, a booklet called The Negro Family, A Case for National Action, written by a Democrat named Daniel Patrick Moynihan. So at 25%, he thought that number was alarming. Well, that's the number right now in the white community. Uh, we fix it by, first of all, talking about it, talking about the problem, and we ought to rethink the, the welfare state. I don't think that when you have people now addicted to welfare, you can all of a sudden cut it off. You can't do that. But I do think we can have some sort of policy where taxpayers direct money that would go to poverty programs, welfare programs, to organizations, nonprofits in their own neighborhood, in their own community that they know and that they know works. Government's not very good at doing all of this, but there are lots of organizations that are doing it on their own, often underfunded, that can produce results a lot better than can the, the government. Also, we need mentors. In my 40-year career on TV and radio, I've invited people like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and Louis Farrakhan to come on, and nobody will. But one so-called black leader who I invited did come on. His name was Kowese Mfume. He was then the chairman of the NAACP. He was a member of Congress from the Baltimore area, and after his stint with the NAACP, he went back to Congress, and he's there now. And I said my first question, this is almost verbatim, Mr. Mfume, as between the presence of white racism or the absence of black fathers, which poses a bigger threat to the black community? And his credit, without missing a beat, he said the absence of black fathers. So when you become president... I like, like the way you said when <laughs> instead of if. I, I like your attitude. <laughs> so when you become president, will the problem of fatherlessness in America be among your top priority issues? Absolutely. Uh, when I run, I intend to talk about the obvious things, which is the economy and inflation and paying people not to work uh, and printing of money. I'll be talking about how we've gone from being energy independent to energy dependent. I'll be talking about gas prices. I'll be talking about crime, the assault against the police that's causing them to pull back and, de and become demoralized uh, and encouraging bad people to do bad things, mostly to black people. I'll be talking about the borders. But there are a couple of things I think I bring to the table that the others don't. Most notably, an ability to refute the lie that America is systemically racist. I believe that one of the reasons Barack Obama got elected, and one of the reasons, even though he got elected with only 52% of the, of the vote, when he walked into the Oval Office for the first time, the third week of January 2009, the man had a 70% approval rating. Can you imagine Donald Trump ever getting 70%? A 70% approval rating. Now, why would all of a sudden people who never voted for him, didn't want Obamacare, didn't want their taxes raised, had a different view on, of the Iraq war, why would all of a sudden people like that increase their acceptance of him? Because people thought at the very least what Barack Obama will do is refute the notion that America is systemically racist. He got a higher percentage of the, of the white vote than John Kerry did four years earlier. That's what they thought they were hiring. When Obama ran, the first interview he gave to 60 Minutes was to a correspondent named Steve Croft. He was running in the primary. He hadn't caught Hillary yet, but he was gaining. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put him on 60 Minutes. And Croft said, Senator, if you don't get the nomination, will it be because of your race? Now, I'm at home by myself, and I'm sitting back, and I said, let's see how this man answers this question. Is he going to give what I consider to be the victocrat answer? If I don't make it because America's not ready for a black president, blah, 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 blah. He didn't. He said, no. If I don't get the nomination, it'll be because I have failed to articulate a vision that the American people can embrace. I went, hallelujah. Also, when he was, 
I think still in the Senate, he hadn't announced yet. He was at a black church and he was talking about how much racism there is in America. And he said, the Moses generation, referring to the generation of MLK, has quote, gotten us 90% of the way there, close quote. Do you think Black Lives Matter believes we're 90% of the way there? No, I don't. He said that. And he said, my generation, referring to his generation, he called it the Joshua generation, has to get us that additional 10%. And I said to myself, I think what he just now said is reasonable. Fox did a poll a few years ago. 8% of Americans, I'm not making this up, believe Elvis is still alive. So we have to get to that additional 10%, 8% of whom believe Elvis is still alive. So maybe you got 2% you can work on outside of that. That's it. That's about you, all you can do. I think I spot him in Nashville, I, you know. <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's pumping gas in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, so that's the guy that Americans thought they hired. The guy they hired was a guy who for 20 years was in the pews of Jeremiah Wright's church where he blasted away at America, uh, where he embraced Louis Farrakhan, and where he made all sorts of anti-Semitic comments. And when Obama first came into office, he was given a golden chance to show he was a guy that Americans thought they hired. His good friend, Henry Louis Skip Gates, who is a Harvard professor, black, he's chairman of the African American Studies, or whatever they call it, was on vacation, came home to his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he forgot his door key. And he and the taxi driver pushed open his door, broke into his house. A neighbor saw this, didn't recognize him as belonging to the house. She called 911, just as you want your neighbor to do. Police shows up, officer shows up, one white officer, sees this man in the house, and of course doesn't know if he belongs to the house. So I very politely asked him to come out and show ID. And what did Professor Gates say? I'll come out if your mama tells me to come out. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like that. So he was briefly arrested, briefly handcuffed, not very long while they were sorting this out. And of course, Henry Gates goes nuts and accuses the officer of racism. What Obama should have said, and they've known each other for years, by the way, they're friends. What Obama should have said is, you know, last night I talked to my friend Skip Gates, that's his nickname. And I said, Skip, you're a role model for crying out loud. You're a Harvard tenure professor. One of the problems we're having are all these young black men who are simply not complying when they're pulled over. Virtually every single one of these high-profile deaths would have been avoided had the civilian slash suspect simply complied. And so I told Skip, you were wrong, and you need to apologize to the officer. What did Obama say? And I'm quoting, the Cambridge police acted stupidly, end of quote. And it ticked off police officers all over the country, and that set the template for the next eight years. He went from that to, if I had a son, he looked like Trayvon, referring to Trayvon Martin. Well, the um, neighborhood watchman, George Zimmerman, who shot and killed Trayvon Martin, was found not guilty. And the jurors who spoke to the press afterwards said race never came up. Now, there were no blacks on the jury, but there was one alternate who was black. And that alternate said, I would have ruled the same way had I sat on the jury. George Zimmerman acted in self-defense, and there's zero evidence that whatever he did had to do with uh, Trayvon Martin's race. Obama gave an interview. And he said, racism is in America's DNA. The first time Gallup asked white Americans if they'd vote for a black president was in the 1950s. And the mid-30s said yes. Today, only a handful of, of whites say they would not vote for a black president if they thought he or she was qualified. And um, Obama embraced Black Lives Matter, which is a movement that is anti-police, anti-family, anti-entrepreneurship, and anti-God. He had Al Sharpton in the White House over 80 times. This is a man who made his bones by falsely accusing a white man of raping Tawana Brawley. He was in the streets of Ferguson before one word of testimony was taken, yelling, no justice, no peace. And it turns out Mike Brown did not have his hands up, did not say don't shoot. His DNA was found on the officer's gun, and the shooting was a complete and total accepted police practice, and the officer was completely exonerated. And Barack Obama brought in, to me, this incendiary in the White House over 80 times. 
Obama's AG, Eric Holder. Do you remember when uh, Donald Sterling lost his team? He's the guy that owned the Clippers, and his girlfriend taped him, and he was saying some negative things about Magic Johnson, about black people, and the NBA took away his team, made him sell it. Around the same time, Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder was giving a speech, and he said, you know, in America today, blatant racism, as when Donald Sterling was taped making these comments, we got that. That's not the issue. What the issue is, is pernicious racism. And he gave three examples, each of which was bogus. Example number one, voter ID. He thought that was an example of pernicious racism. Every single poll I've shown show majority of blacks support voter ID. And the Supreme Court ruled six to three, written in a majority opinion written by John Paul Stevens, the most liberal justice up there, ruled that the Indiana law that required voter ID was a legitimate exercise to ensure voter integrity. Liberals supported voter ID. Supreme Court supported voter ID. Blacks support voter ID. That's an example of pernicious racism. What else you got? Second one was this. Black boys are disproportionately expelled on a given student body, K through 12, than white kids. And it's true. Jesse Jackson in the mid-80s filed a lawsuit against the Decatur, Illinois School Board here in this state because the Decatur, Illinois School Board kicked out several black kids who were fighting at, after a football game. Turns out the kids had collectively missed hundreds of days of school. They were kicked out of school. In comes Jackson. He accuses the all-white school board of systemic racism, files a lawsuit. And the school board defended itself by pointing out all around the country, irrespective of the racial composition of the school board, irrespective of the race of the principal, of the race of the teacher, black boys are kicked out disproportionately compared to other races in that given school. Why? Because they are acting out. That's your example of pernicious racism? And by the way, by failing to kick them out of school, everybody in this room has had an instance where you've been in a classroom where there have been two or three knuckleheads. What happens? Teacher stops, turns, deals with the knuckleheads. Everybody's learning curve goes down. So people who are hurt by not kicking out bad kids are the very black people that people like Jackson claim that he cares about. The third example that Holder gave is the fact that the average black criminal compared to a white criminal committed the same crime gets a longer sentence. It's also true. And... What Eric Holder referred to was a U.S. Sentencing Commission that found that to be true. The average uh, black criminal gets a sentence about 20.5% longer than the average white criminal who committed the same crime. What he didn't say is the same commission said the reason for that is the average black criminal has more convictions than the average white criminal, and that is taken into consideration by judges. And the Sentencing Commission said the disparity is for, quote, legitimate reasons, close quote. This is all you got? This is your systemic racism? Those are your best examples? Obama made things worse. When he came into office, both blacks and whites thought race relations would improve. When he left office, both blacks and whites thought race relations got worse. All because of the anti-cop, anti-white people, uh, anti-American, I would say, rhetoric and policies by Barack Obama. He made things worse. Larry Elder here on Illinois Family Spotlight. We're gonna take a brief time out, continue our conversation from the Black Conservative Summit right after this. With a one-minute look at culture from a Christian worldview, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. According to a recent report from the Institute for Family Studies, quote, on average, early marrieds enjoy slightly higher marital quality than later marrieds on metrics like relationship satisfaction, sexual satisfaction, teamwork, and communication. Women who marry early, for example, report an 11% lead in sexual satisfaction over those who marry later in life. And for men, the gap's even bigger at 14%. This supports findings from another IFS study that, quote, spouses who have only had sex with their current spouse have the highest levels of sexual satisfaction in marriage. 
Now, these findings counter widespread cultural assumptions that couples should be sure of their compatibility, that sexual autonomy and so-called sexual freedom is the path to personal happiness. No, God gave marriage to the world as a gift, as the best context for sex, and as a real-life sign of His love for His people. So we shouldn't be surprised when His way actually works out for the best. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. Monty Larry here at the Black Conservative Summit. We're continuing our conversation with Larry Elder, the executive producer of Uncle Tom 1 and Uncle Tom 2. He's running for president. He may run for president. He may run for president. <laughs> and thank you for even considering running for president because it's a, quite an ordeal. One of the things you mentioned at the Black Conservative Summit was that you had a very strained relationship with your father for several years, 10 years. But one of the things your dad did, he worked multiple jobs. Right. So you could have a stay-at-home mom. Right. What did that mean to you? I saw a poll that says many women who are working who have children would love to be a stay-at-home mom. Financially, for reasons that have to do with the kinds of things that they want, they work outside the home. I don't know that I've seen any studies that compare um, children who had stay-at-home moms to those who didn't have stay-at-home moms, but I am sure there have been studies, and my presumption is that people who come home when the mom is there are better adjusted, more confident. The parent can make sure that the kid has done his or her homework because she's there watching it. My feeling is that there is a reason that kids feel better when they have a stay-at-home mom. I just enjoyed coming home and telling her what happened during the day. And I remember when my mom went to work outside the home, she waited until the last of us had graduated from uh, middle school. And I remember coming home and having this eerie feeling that she wasn't there. It just gives you a feeling of security, just like having a father. Somebody once said, a father is a person who tells you, you got what it takes. And a mother is somebody who gives you unconditional love, as does your father but in a way somewhat different than the kind of love that your father gives you. It's a safe space, to use the left-wing term that they often use, when your mom is home in the house and you are coming home from school. Now, I work for the Illinois Family Institute, and one of our goals is to get kids out of government schools. But for a lot of low-income families, white, black, Hispanic, whatever, that's almost impossible to do. How do we fix that? We fix that by something called educational savings accounts, where the money goes into an account that the parent controls. So the money follows the child rather than the other way around. And that way, the parent is in charge, uh, not your zip code, and not some government bureaucrat telling you that your kid should go to this particular government school. One of the many things that Donald Trump did was to put in Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, and she was a strong proponent of school choice. The people who know the school system the best are the teachers. question is, where do they put their own school-age kids? It was a Fordham study some years ago that examined where Government school teachers around the country put their own school-age kids. Nationwide, 10% families have their kids in, in uh, private schools. 6% of black families do. In Philadelphia, 49% of the Philadelphia public school teachers with school-age kids put their own kids in private schools. 39% of the Chicago public uh, government school teachers put their own kids in private schools. Around 28% of those at the Los Angeles Unified School District, where I am, put their own kids in private schools. So the people who know the schools the best are not putting their own kids in them. It is the equivalent of you opening up a restaurant, putting up a sign saying, come on in, eat the food. We won't. When you see these academic outcomes in math, science, uh, reading, and then the X-rated uh, grooming sex ed in the schools, what do you say to parents? 
do you say, well, you've got to fight the school system, or do you say you got to get them out? Both. You need to get them out, meaning you need to propose school choice, but until then, you got to get involved. I've urged people to run for school board, affect change at that level. One of the things I like to think that I did when I ran for governor, because I'd never run for anything before other than, other than third grade class president, and yes, I won that race, so I'm batting 500. Um, I encourage a lot of people to run, and people kept coming up to me saying, you know, because you decided to run, I'm running for school board, I'm running for county commissioner, I'm running for supervisor. I got inspired a lot of people to get off the couch, get in, because if we don't change it, no one else is going to change it. So I urge people to, A, show up at your school board meetings, B, run for school board, uh, and C, push for school choice. So the money follows the child rather than the other way around. When you have 13 public high schools where 0% of kids can do math at grade level, and another half dozen where only one can, that's half the public high schools in Baltimore. We are in trouble. We're nationwide, according to the NELP exam, often known as the nation's report card, 85% a black eighth grader, these are kids who are 13 years old, can either do math nor read at grade proficiency. Half of them can't even do basic reading, which means a large number of black eighth graders are functionally illiterate. How in the world are they going to be able to compete in a digital age like that? And think about all of the anger it'll, it'll produce downstream by people who can't get jobs, can't get decent jobs, uh, and can't live the kind of lifestyle that they want. It's a horror show that the Democratic Party is wedded at the hip with a teacher's union that adamantly opposes school choice because their job is to keep their teachers in jobs and keep their pay up. Their, their goal is not to make sure that the parents are getting a good product for their kid. A lot of conservatives say if we're going to expand our base, we have to reach out to the black community, the Hispanic community, et cetera. Why is Larry Elder the best person to do that? Well, I don't think I'm the best person to do it, but I think I, I am capable of doing it. When I ran for governor, I got support from a woman named Gloria Romero. Gloria Romero used to be the Senate majority leader in the California State Senate. She's a Democrat. And the reason she supported me and took a lot of grief for it is because of my support for school choice. The people who are hurt the most by not having school choice are people living in the inner city to get the worst teachers, the worst principals, the worst bureaucrats. There's something called the dance of the lemon or the turkey trot. If there's a bad teacher and you put that teacher in a pretty good area, the parents are going to complain. They transfer the teacher. They don't fire them. They transfer them. Ultimately, they end up in an area where the parents are less involved, less likely to complain, and that's the urban schools in the inner city. So the kids that need the best teachers are, in fact, getting the worst teachers. And Gloria knows that because she's been working on this problem for a long time. As a result, I got a lot of support from the Hispanic community. Regarding the black community, Donald Trump got 8% of the black vote in 2016, which, was, which is a small number, but it's better than most of the Republicans have done in recent years. In 2020, that number had gone to 12%. That's a 50% increase. 20% of black men voted for Donald Trump because they like what he did on the economy, they like what he did on the borders, they like what he did on, on the First Step Act, which allowed some 5,000 mostly black men by the time he left to have their prison sentences reconsidered and reduced an average of 70 months. He produced, as I said, the best economy ever for black people. He expanded what are called uh, opportunity zones, which lowered taxes and regulations in the inner city to, uh, to spark economic activity. He was an extraordinarily good president for black people. And I think the results are the results. Look at what Joe Biden has done. Uh, look at what's happened with learning loss because of the way he, sh- he encouraged schools to be shut down. The learning loss, not just math, not just reading, but also will translate into a loss of income over the, over the lifetime of these students. So I think telling people the truth, and the truth is that systemic racism is not holding you back. Attitudes, culture, and so-called black leaders who you think are on your side are poisoning your mind and making you believe hard work does not win. I saw a graph that looked at the average amount of homework that a black kid does every night 
compared to the average amount of homework that a Hispanic kid does compared to a white kid compared to an Asian American kid. And look at the Asian American graph versus the black graph night and day. Nobody is stopping you from doing homework. No black kid, and many blacks are oriented towards sports, no black kid would deny that the more often you practice your free throw, the better you're going to get at it. For, for some reason, that doesn't apply to math or reading or science. Hmm. We need to raise our game. Let me wrap up with this question. What advice do you have to conservatives here in big blue Illinois? Don't condescend. Tell the truth. Talk about what the Democratic Party has done to you, how the Democratic Party historically was a party of slavery, the party of Jim Crow, the party of the Confederacy, opposed the 13th, the 14th, the 15th Amendment, as a percentage of the party, voted less for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 than did uh, Republicans. And this is a party that has caused the destruction of a nuclear intact family. These people are not your friend. And talk to them about the benefits of lowering taxes. Uh, my father used to say, I never got a job from a poor person. And when you take away taxes from rich people, uh, it gives them less money for plant, for equipment, for hiring people. It hurts people downstream. And talk about how Republicans are the party of anti-abortion, and abortion is savaging the black community. Republicans are the party of school choice. Look and decide who is on your side, Democrats, that have undermined the family, that have historically been the party of racism, or Republicans who believe in freedom, hard work, school choice, and oppose abortion. There you go. How can folks watch Uncle Tom 2, and how can they connect with Larry Elder? You can watch Uncle Tom 2 by going to UncleTom.com. You can also go on YouTube, and you can watch Uncle Tom 1. I have a uh, political action committee called ElderForAmerica.com, ElderForAmerica.com, emerging people to throw a little something in the tip jar. You can watch my show on Epic Time by going to Larry with Epoch, E-P-O-C-H.com. I do this show four days a week. It's one hour long. The entire hour-long show is on LarryWithEpic.com. It's also on cable, a channel called N like Nancy, T like Tom, D like David, NTD. You can watch the entire show by going to LarryWithEpoch, E-P-O-C-H.com. Also, please follow me on Twitter, at Larry Elder. Follow me on Instagram, Larry Elder Show, and I'm also on, uh, on Facebook, obviously. Thank you. God bless you. God bless Larry Elder. God bless you folks tuning in. Please support the work of Illinois Family Institute, Illinois Family Action. Tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight. And until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.